0: You're listening to Recover, a podcast exploring what it means to rediscover something we lost inside ourselves. Whether through addiction, grief, or trauma, we're all connected by the feelings of sometimes losing our way. Let's unlearn what got us here, and find ourselves again, together. And now your host, founder and facilitator at Invitation Wellness, Sierra Frost. listening to Recover. I'm Sierra Frost, and today I have the pleasure of being here with Anna Des. Thank you for being here today, Anna.
1: Thank you, Sierra.
0: So when you hear the word recovery, how do you relate to that word or that concept, or how has it played out in your life?
1: I feel like I am constantly on a road of recovery from little bumps that seem to Pop up that are unexpected. And I think that that's a common thing for people. Just something comes up that throws you off course and you have to get back to your center. Um, for me, one of the big things that I'm constantly feel like I'm recovering from is struggling with an eating disorder. Um, and it really has shaped who I've become the past few years. In so many ways, not just because of trying to recover from that, but all of the self-reflection that has to go with it, and trying to determine what is your home base, like what is normal for you, what what would you like recovery to be, and it's always this constant, oh um, well, yeah, reflection, but also self-awareness that you have to have. Um, it's definitely a Road and a process.
0: Yeah, I love the way that you phrased what would you like your recovery to be, because yeah. recovery really does look different for everyone, and it comes from lots of different places, but I think you're right in the way that it always includes a really intense amount of self-reflection and self-awareness, yeah. and I also want to touch on what you said about understanding kind of where your baseline is, your home base is, when you first started to realize like, Hey, my eating patterns have some, there's something going on there or considering that you could have had an eating disorder. What was that like for you?
1: Um, gosh. So the first time that I developed my eating disorder, I was 15 years old. Um, and at the time, I think it was, I realized other aspects of my life were starting to they felt like they were falling apart. And it was that one thing that I could really control. And I remember the first time I was running around the soccer field and I'd had nothing but a slice of buttered toast that day. And I was on like my sixth mile, just running around the soccer field back up in Homer and reflecting and thinking, why doesn't somebody notice? Like, why hasn't somebody said something? Like, hasn't it registered? To somebody that i'm not okay um but i didn't know how to ask and let people know that i wasn't okay um and i think it was so hard at that age too because as far as like discovering your baseline and who you are you don't really know who you are at 16 or whatever um and then a similar thing kind of happened so i did recover quote unquote recover for Oh gosh, probably about seven years or so before I had a relapse and it was the same thing. It was like, kind of lost my sense of identity and I didn't know who I was. So I didn't have that baseline. I think that's why the self-discovery aspect is so important to me because I almost made my eating disorder my identity because it was something I could control It was something that was consistent. So
0: that's a really important concept. Because the one thing that I always talk about is that trauma, no matter what kind, whether it is being in a an accident or a natural disaster or depression or abuse or an eating disorder, you we lose control. Yeah, like we don't have control over it, and then we and then we kind of do these things to grasp and like desperately have control over something to help us feel better. And oftentimes, the thing that we're trying to control isn't the root of the problem, right? Yeah. And and like you described, we we're not sure how to ask for help. Like we're in such a vulnerable and deep and probably shameful space that it's almost impossible for people to reach out and say this is going on, especially with all of the stigma and the judgment and not knowing how other people might respond. Um, that that could even make the situation worse. And so we we do things sort of silently and and hope that people will notice.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, there's such a stigma about reaching out and asking for help. And I don't think it helps that I grew up in an Alaskan town, albeit like, Homer itself is so supportive and the people there are so supportive, but you're raised from a young age to be like, I'm supposed to be independent. I'm supposed to be able to manage my stuff. When I'm 18, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to like have my house. Like I will not need parental support. Um, so the idea of asking for help is just so foreign in general. Uh, it's just, it's challenging.
0: Yeah. I, don't know, I, I call. I call that the Alaska woman syndrome.
1: <laughs> yes. it's, it's, like,
0: it's, like, it's like, yeah, you get, you, the culture is very much like pioneering and living off the land. And, and it's all of these really beautiful things. And then sometimes it's, it's like swung over to the more intense side of not being able to ask for help or not not understanding that all humans need help at some point in time. And so it's okay to reach out and get that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely something I still struggle with. I took a bed apart the other day and I refused to call anybody for help and moved it down four flights of stairs by myself. So, it's a work in progress. But
0: I think that's really relatable to probably a lot of a lot of people <laughs> listening right now, <laughs> men and women both. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to your story and and tell us more so you're running around the track you've only eaten toast and and in your head you're like why hasn't anyone noticed this cry for help that i'm having like what did get you to help did someone finally notice were you able to reach out in some way what was the tipping point for you so
1: gosh like i said my my journey's had so many ups and downs it hasn't really been there's not a straight path to recovery and i feel like i Definitely zigzagged all over, fell backwards and fell forwards. Um, by the time I, when I was in high school, by the time people noticed, and my my mom's so aware with this, she's so on top of it. She's just like you can tell that she is a counselor because <laughs> she was definitely the first person to notice before anyone else. Like I would have people applaud me for not like losing weight or or like not eating sugar or something like that but mom was right on it and immediately got me into therapy um i had weekly weigh-ins with dr tutora um over at the homer clinic and ended up going to inpatient treatment um and uh at that point part of me wanted help but also part of me was already in it and like this is my thing like this is this was my one thing that I didn't want somebody to take away from me. Um, so there's a lot of like bitterness and resentment. And I tried to engage in recovery and treatment as best I could. And I did all right when I was there. I made some amazing friends. And honestly, I think that's been the biggest thing for me is every time I do go to a treatment, I'm with girls who get it. They understand that it's not about my body and it's not about necessarily how I look but just how it makes me feel like if I don't eat I feel numb and I don't have to really take on any other emotions or anything like that and it's something that I can do for myself although it's not really for myself but in my mind it's my thing um and they completely understand it and don't judge it they don't look at me like I'm crazy and I'm weird and they just know what I'm going through like I can't explain what it's like to see food and actually be afraid of it, like have yourself feel like you're gonna throw up before you even look at it, not even the, the idea of it going in your body, but just the fear of it, your like of itself, and just having your heart just start racing. And these girls just understood, um, and they were the biggest support for me. Um, when I left treatment, it's so much different to try to live recovery. Inside a disciplined treatment center versus at home. And I started losing weight pretty much as soon as I got back. And I don't, gosh, that time I don't even remember what was the turning point. I do remember one day being at Latitude 59 and they had muffins, and they were like the best muffins ever. And I ate a muffin and was like, that was really good. I really missed muffins. And it was like something kind of just like randomly clicked in my head. Um, But yeah, it's funny. I think things that have helped me along the way have really been friendship and camaraderie. So every time I have peer support or somebody who just stands by my side, it's really helpful.
0: I want to come back to the community aspect because I agree yeah. that, that that's important to everyone no matter what quote-unquote kind of recovery we go through. But I also want to touch on what I'm understanding from what you're saying is that it's almost like we present with an eating disorder, but there's a deeper thing to it. And and I I hear you when we think of an eating disorder, it's like it's all about – it's all about the food and it's all about the body. Like that's how our culture kind of interacts with that that type of experience. But to me, and you can tell me if I'm not understanding you correctly, to me it's like it's about the sense of control. And it's almost like other types of self-harm, whether someone is cutting or, or starving themselves, it's more about that aspect of control. And there's probably like a deeper root, something going on. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's different for every person. Like I can only really speak from my own experience, but I feel like it's very seldom related to the body. Oftentimes it may start that way and appear that way. I know that... I gained a little bit of weight that year because I broke my arm and I wasn't able to do as many athletic activities and kind of how it started. And the similar thing back when, it, it, back when I relapsed in college is I put on a little bit of weight and it kicked in. Um, but it was more than just that. That's like the initial startup. And then once it got going, yeah, it was something that I felt i felt like i could just have that control of if i couldn't control anything else it was something consistent um if i couldn't count on other people i could always count on that um and i know that sounds so twisted we always talk in like insert world they'll talk about eating disorders as n like as if it's a person like ed um because it it's the only way to take away our own personal stigma for it and not feel so ashamed because I honestly I remember in seventh grade watching a video about a ballet dancer who had an eating disorder and be like that is screwed up like that is so disgusting like how does that happen and then even a few years back being at the lowest point i would ever been I was 65 pounds and looking in the mirror and just crying and being like I look like I'm about to die like I look like I'm going to die and I can't stop like there's absolutely nothing I can do I can't stop. Um, and knowing exactly what I looked like, exactly what was happening, but continuing to not eat and continuing to like work out excessively. Um, you know, I was definitely, I was numbing for sure as a big part of it because it is true that when you don't eat, you go into survival mode and you just deal with all of that stuff and you don't have to deal with the influx of emotions. One of the things I remember my therapist saying when I was an inpatient um, is that I would just cry all the time. Like when I started eating food and I was gaining weight and finally close to like a healthy weight, I was just crying nonstop. I was like, I don't know what's going on. He's like, Anna, you're feeling again. Like, this is what it's like to feel. You haven't addressed any of this for years and now you have to feel everything. And it was, it was like, trauma and experiences that I would had when I was like five or six. If somebody mentioned something, it would just like bring me right back to it and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it. gosh, yeah, it's, it's not just the food. It's just the food, just a tool.
0: I'm really glad you're sharing this experience in this way because it's really illustrating. I think a lot of people who maybe don't understand eating disorders do understand better like alcoholism or addiction and when you're describing like you could see the problem you could see in your body that you were literally in danger of losing your life but still in in the throes of addiction and you know couldn't stop exercising or couldn't just just eat which and i think a lot of people who maybe haven't had this experience would think well like we'll just eat you know and and, and it's not that simple Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, and then like you said, as we numb and some, some people like eat food to numb and some people stop eating food to numb. Some people shop, some people um, watch television, some people use drugs or alcohol, right? There's so many different ways of numbing. And what I want everyone to understand is as human beings, we're built, like we're physically built to experience emotions. We have a whole system in our body. Like sometimes we think of it as this kind of like abstract concept of emotions that we could like pick or choose them or um, or not have to have them at all. And the truth is that if we numb one emotion, say it's stress or trauma or sadness, we numb them all. It's an all or nothing game. It's not a pick and choose. And when we numb ourselves, Our emotions just get stored in our bodies and then eventually something happens whether it's you're like exercising one day or maybe you're getting a massage or maybe you just see someone who reminds you of somebody else and a memory comes up and the exact same emotions that we stored come out and we may or may not know why because we may or may not connect the trigger of the memory or of the emotion but it feels exactly the same. So in yeah. situations like you're describing, when we numb ourselves for a long period of time, and then we start to feel again, at the beginning, you hear people say, it gets worse before it gets better. Yeah. And that phrase is like, at the beginning, you're literally trying to process like five years of emotions, like step by step, but they're all exactly. kind of coming up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, it's it's so it's really interesting because uh, gosh as rough as this experience was and as much as it completely turned my life around I wouldn't be the person that I am today if I hadn't experienced everything um so I ended up going into social work um and now I work with a lot of people who have addiction when they talk about their story I can understand so much more of it because I can see so much of my story kind of intermingled with theirs, which you don't necessarily want to do in social work, honestly, it's kind of supposedly a bad thing, but um, it can be really helpful and kind of humanize it for me a lot. Um, Because yeah, it's, it's not an easy journey and very seldom, like if somebody goes to treatment Like you said, it's so, they have to take on so much at once that very seldom do people recover the first time, whether that's eating disorders, whether that's drug addiction, it's really hard to just, but people can do it and they amaze me like no other, but it's hard to just flip that switch and just power through because it can be so overwhelming.
0: Definitely. That makes total sense. And when we're... Working with people or even if it's a personal relationship we're supporting someone who is on like maybe at the beginning, maybe even in the middle, but in this this road of recovery, it's important. Like you said, it's important that we don't shift the focus to be about us. And I also want to give people permission to still like bridge the gap between being professional and being friendly, like being personable, because like you said, what happens is when we don't relate to something or we stop ourselves from relating to something, it's like this disconnect and connection is really important. In, in the realm of recovery, I would even say that it's necessary. Like it's not optional for, for recovery to be successful for somebody. percent. Yeah, so, yeah. So being able to share like a little bit of, of our stories just enough that the person knows that we're human and that we're real and that we've also maybe had not exactly the same, but similar experiences yeah. and that we see them also as a capable human being is like, I actually don't know if I could recommend, like, if someone, if you're listening and you're you're thinking that maybe you have a loved one uh, or somebody that you know who might be relating to Anna's experience, like, the best thing that I think I could say would be to just let them know that they're capable, that you believe in them. Like, that's the most no, that's powerful perfect. thing I think yeah. could happen. Yeah. Can you talk more about that idea of connection and community? Let's go back to that Um, in any in any form of of your story or even in in your professional life as far as like having support systems and having like I don't know anyone. I'm not saying it's not possible. I think everything is possible, but I don't know anyone who has made progress in recovery that didn't have some sort of support system and and usually actually a very large support system.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I one thing that's really hard when I was at my worst when I'm struggling the most is when people are gone and there's a few reasons for that like I understand because I'm so involved in my eating disorder that I'm not necessarily there for other people but at the same time it's really scary to see like um and it's hard to form new connections, I consider myself a very friendly, bubbly person and nice and outgoing, or at least I hope so. Um, But when you live in a big city and you weigh next to nothing, people assume the worst about you. And people who don't know you will write you off as Uh a tweaker or something its like that and with just derogative terms um and then people who are close to you are scared for you and scared of you at the same time so it can be very very lonely and being that lonely makes it just easier to sink into your eating disorder or into whatever your addiction is honestly I think because it's all you have left um I was so fortunate this time around um, it's been about three or so years since I decided to follow the path of recovery and really be dedicated to it Um, but I was so fortunate that I had a ton of friends that never left my side like people back from Homer people from here like family so sorry um and we made such a solid support net that it wasn't even like an option to fail like i couldn't have failed if i tried my gosh darn hardest um i have an aunt in seattle and she flew down she covered all of the expenses for me to do intensive outpatient. so i created my own support team with staff like with professionals that I knew and loved instead of doing the traditional inpatient or traditional program. I created my own team and did weekly therapy, like two therapy sessions a week. I went to a support group every week. I had weekly weigh-ins with my doctor and I met with my psychiatrist every other week. Um, and I, so I basically never had a day that I didn't have an appointment or I didn't have support. Um, And having like picking my own team was huge for me because they were people who I'd worked with for a long time and they kind of knew me better than if I had done a traditional outpatient, Um, which is not something you hear people say very often, like most professionals would not recommend it. But for me, it worked because I had that consistent community who saw me as a person. Um, And then my friends, like rock stars, never left my side. I can't say enough praise about my roommate, Ramin. My best friend, Ramin, that I lived down here with, I was living on my own. When things started to go south, he asked me to move in with him so that he could, for partially because it would save me money on rent, but just so that he could be there for support if I needed it. Um, I have friends that, like Jenny Bitterman over in Utah, who would reach out to me regularly and check in, you know? So I think I really needed that. I really needed people to know, like people that I knew were involved and invested and cared, but I also needed to have relationships that were outside of myself. So that community was so crucial. So.
0: Do you think that you would have made it to where you are today without all those people?
1: No, I don't think so. Um, when I was in the hospital three years ago, right before I started, decided to get better, um, the doctors told me I would not be alive till Christmas. And I 100% believe that if I didn't have that support, I would not be alive today, so.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing, and, and it's a beautiful story because it really illustrates the importance of connection. And it's so yeah. easy for people, like the majority of, of things that I, that I do in my work, and you probably see similar in yours, is, helping people maintain relationships and not just the person who's directly recovering, but the people around them, because what happens is there's, there's misunderstanding. There's not understanding. I definitely have lost friends in this way. And I know a lot of our listeners can relate to that where our loved ones they don't know what to do. We don't talk about mental health in a like effective way. We don't we don't even talk about like social emotional intelligence in school. A lot of people that we just have never had that conversation. We don't have the skills to understand how to support someone. And then we try to say something and maybe, maybe it's something that doesn't feel good. Maybe it's something that's shaming. And from the perspective of someone from the outside, you know, I want I want to give some space for this. Because what I, I don't want people to to think that if maybe you said the the wrong thing at some point in time that you are not worthy or that like you caused someone to have an addiction or to be oh, worse yeah. in their
1: no, addiction. No, nobody causes it.
0: Right. Exactly. So, but we can we can learn to do better. And I, so I think what happens is we get we get scared when our loved ones are suffering or struggling, and especially in a very visual way. It's it's like. We get really nervous, and and then if we don't know what to do, we feel powerless. We feel like we we can't support, we can't help, and sometimes we get so scared that to defend that scaredness, and this isn't conscious, but we run away. Oh yeah. We we abandon people because we don't know how to help them, and it's really hard to watch people struggle. It's really yeah. hard.
1: Yeah, it's uh... I. When people approached me, sometimes I would get really angry with them and I could see how hard that would be for them to have to deal with, especially close friends. But I'm now so grateful for them. And I think that's something I would let people know is don't be afraid to approach them and don't be afraid of their anger, but just make sure that when you're approaching them, that you're making it about them, being like, hey, I'm worried about you are you okay? You seem like something seems off. What's up? And just leaving that space and leaving it open can sometimes be really helpful. Or even being like, I've noticed this is going on. Can Do you want to talk about it? That's fine. That's great. Like, thank you. Just creating that space is so crucial and knowing that you're there.
0: Yeah, if you're if you're listening right now and you have time to just jot something down, there's two things that Anna just said that are so so important and that I'm always teaching to people to start with being able to start a conversation. The first is to remind consistently the person that you care about them, and yeah. and you might have to remind them several times, <laughs> and that's <Yes>. okay. Like, <laughs> you can't over remind someone that you care about them really unless they tell you like, okay, I get it, I'm, I understand. <laughs> And then the second thing is to lead with an observation. So like, hey, I I saw that you posted XYZ on Instagram, and I just wanted to check in and see how you're doing. Or yeah. I noticed that you skipped breakfast and lunch at home and I'm wondering if you want to join me for dinner or something like that. Depending, you know, but But it needs to be an observation that's like it's factual. It's black and white. It yeah. takes the judgment out of it so the person can't feel as shamed because they're already feeling shame. No matter what you're recovering from, there's always this aspect of shame. So we want to work as hard as we can not to add to that.
1: Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of really good points with that, especially with the shame aspect of, like, guarantee that people who are struggling are judging themselves harder than you are judging them. Um, and to be aware of that, it's so crucial.
0: Definitely. The other thing I, I would like to invite people to change, and it's it's more of just a mindset, but I think our natural response to anger or... Um, rigidity even like people experiencing stress is to like give space or retract and the truth is if someone feels angry or frustrated or sad these things that we kind of avoid because we get uncomfortable or for whatever reason the truth is they probably need more love and so instead of retracting and giving space and like letting them figure it out on their own sometimes it's it's best to like test the waters and and keep coming back. And even if it's just a text or a, a simple, um, conversation, it doesn't even have to be necessarily directly about that thing, but just a reminder that there's people around them that care about them, that believe in them, that, that, that are there and that they have a support system and that, that they are loved in those times when someone feels angry. It's kind of like, um, what we do with children, right? Like our, our kids are throwing a tantrum and we get, we're frustrated and there's probably a billion other things already happening. And so we kind of throw up our arms and we're like, fine, have a tantrum on the floor. I'm going to go over here for a second. And it's like, it's like, if you need a break, I mean, take a break. If you feel like you're, you're at your wit's end, take a break. Yeah,
1: that's a self care thing. Right. That's crucial.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that, but it's different than like putting a child in timeout be and and like asking them to figure it out and it's not it's we do it in our in our justice system as well right we we put people in jail and then we expect them to know how to behave differently when they get out without any any support or any love and it doesn't work like we see that it doesn't work our jails just continue to be full um the reoffensive rate, the recidiv- recidivism rate, is super high. Oh, yeah. Like it, it doesn't work. And so, if you do have the power, or can ask someone else who might have a little bit more energy or capability, resources in that moment, to like hug the child, to hug the adult, right, <laughs> right. Um, it doesn't like it doesn't. The age doesn't matter. It's that. It, anger or frustration or these emotions that we avoid are signs and messages that that person needs some more support. Yeah. What does recovery look like for you now, Anna?
1: Recovery is every day for me. I'm a healthy weight, and I have been for a long time. I weightlift for fun now, and I work out for fun now. I like sweets probably more than a doctor would recommend, but that's okay. Um, but I mean, every day is so different for me. Some days I will feel fine around food. I still, I still get. I, have, I always have to battle self-talk. Um, it hasn't, that hasn't changed. It doesn't go away. Um, I think I just have better ways of coping with things. Like I still struggle going out to eat with friends. Like I would love to do anything but go out to eat with friends. Like try dating in a city when you're like, oh, that's great, but I don't want to get drinks and I don't want to eat food. So what can we do? Um, it's so, yeah, it's, It's still really challenging. I feel like I've made a lot of progress this year. And just starting with little things, like having lunch with my classmates or having lunch with a coworker and actually sitting down for that, that kind of stuff um, has been helpful for me. Um, Giving myself grace to skip a workout when I'm tired. Um, But, also allowing myself to feel things. Like if I'm not okay, I I can be okay not being okay. So what am I gonna do about it? Do I just need to experience those feelings and just sit in it for a second? Do I have to like do something to actually feel better? Is that gonna be like watching Netflix? So I need to relax today. Like, what's going to help me and what's really going to support me is that I can feel the most authentic and strongest.
0: So Can you talk a little bit more about like the sense of ambivalence that that we get? Like there's a process in recovery that I see in a lot of a lot of my clients where at the beginning or maybe even like before we make the choice to commit to recovery. It's like our emotions are in control. It's the only thing that we can really see or feel. And then we numb ourselves from it. And then we get to this point. That's a huge turning point where we can feel the emotion, but we can also kind of separate ourselves and witness it and understand That there's these other choices at the same time or maybe we can feel two emotions like i I can feel anger or um helpless and i can also feel joy or gratitude at the at the same time and if you're listening and, and you're like how is that possible I want to give permission to just consider that, that idea. I think a lot of times we think we can only feel one thing at a time, but the truth is we're capable of of feeling a lot of different things at the same time. And I think that's why sometimes it gets confusing. Did you ever reach that point or can you talk about what that's like now for you?
1: Yeah. I think sometimes I just feel, and I think I can't imagine that the only person who really struggles identifying my emotions sometimes, just feeling so overwhelmed because there's so many different things going on and being like, overall, I'm in a good mood today, but this small aspect is making me a little sad right now, but I'm also really frustrated that this has happened and I'm really tired. Because I'm tired, it's hard to be happy. And there's so, many, so much stuff going on that is always a challenge. Um, I always liked, I had, uh, a therapist who we would do guided meditation together and she would always say picture your emotions going by like a river and like just you see something pass and that's okay that's part of it and then the next thing passes that's still part of the river like it's all still part of it and just like acknowledge that it's there for a second and allow yourself to recognize that it's present because it's affecting you whether or not you realize it like uh, it's easy for me to smile now and be like everything's great. I'm totally fine, even if I'm not. But to recognize that there's still other stuff going on within me, and to honor that,
0: definitely. And and you're right. You are not alone in having a hard time recognizing emotions because a lot. Like I don't think I would be very good at the work that I do if I didn't start with human development and early childhood education. Oh and gosh, which, yeah. The reason I say that is because. Well, number one, trauma is an elective, like in a psychology degree, just so everyone knows. If you go see someone within the field of mental health, you, you should probably ask them if they have some sort of training or background or like how they deal with trauma, because it's not necessarily something that they have been educated about. And that's, you know, no judgment. Just know what you're getting into. And the second piece is we don't teach, and I, I know I already said this, but we don't teach social emotional intelligence. It's it's pretty rare, and, and like sometimes in kindergarten, like you'll show, you'll see that kids look at a picture and, and try and label the emotion based on the facial expression of somebody. But beyond that, we don't really identify our emotions. And biologically, when we, in our brains, when we are able to identify, this is the emotion that I'm feeling, there's a chemical a peptide attached to that specific emotion that goes into our body and it actually tells our body how to respond to it so if we don't label the emotion that process won't happen it's like it's like you get stuck and your your body's like it wants to move forward it wants to respond but it doesn't know what or how to respond um and, and there's like a physical it's like if I feel sad you might notice when you feel sad that like your chest or your heart sinks and your shoulder blades kind of drop down that's a that's a pretty common posture for someone who feels sad right and so you can see that there's there's a behavior and you probably felt it in your body at least in your posture and then there's some sort of behavior attached to that okay now I feel sad what do I do? Maybe I starve myself maybe I eat a whole cake maybe I go shopping, like whatever, or, or maybe, um, in a healthier way, like I call a friend or I do some journaling or there's, you know, there's a whole spectrum of, of behaviors that might be your pattern and you can choose to change your pattern, but it has to start with the labeling of your emotion. And a lot of people don't know that, that, that when you label your emotion, your body physically and biologically responds to it.
1: Yeah. One thing that I do when I was working with the I used to work with teens in foster care and one things that we would do is we had the halt and it was you you stop when you're having a reaction being like am I hungry angry lonely tired and I changed it to chult because for me I get cold really easily and when I'm cold I'm an awful person um but how oftentimes we're addressing the wrong thing like we're trying to we're addressing maybe our loneliness by going and doing social stuff when really we're actually really angry. We need to recognize that. Um, or we're really lonely, but we're recognizing the hunger aspect and just binge eating. Um, so I think that even that is such a great starting point for people.
0: That is. And um, I've heard that in Encircled like twelve-step group circles and yoga for recovery, and I share that with my clients too. A lot of them choose to write "halt" on their on their mirrors or on their refrigerator or something, just as a reminder. And whether or not you experience an addiction or a mental health illness or anything like that, if you're human and you have a human brain and a human body, I think it's worth going down that checklist and checking. And like, am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I lonely? Am I tired? And allowing yourself to pause and not have to make any big decisions or big communications in that space until whatever is happening can pass or can be dealt with.
1: I think it's really important to have those self check-ins regularly throughout the day just to kind of see where you're at and what your temperature is at. Um, And by temperature, I mean mood and emotions. I think it makes you a better person. It can make it can improve your relationships, because if you have good self-awareness, you're probably acting appropriately within the appropriate setting. You can be more in to others. Um, And it can help you really fulfill your deeper needs.
0: Yeah, and when we can help ourselves as much as possible to fulfill our deeper needs, then we don't have to rely on other people as much. We don't have to um, get into that that cycle of, of codependency is really oftentimes what it presents as, where it's it's like maybe even taking care of other people to avoid taking care of ourselves, like especially with women, I see this all the time. Oh, yeah. And I agree with what I'm understanding you're saying, and I talk about this all the time, that the 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 biggest source of pain in the world of mental health challenges and illnesses is relationship. It's loss of relationship. It's relationships being hurt because... There's so many factors of understanding, like, how do we take care of ourselves in that moment? How do other people not take on our addictions and our mental health illness? And how how do we balance that? How do we learn how to interact with it, how to talk to it, how how to support but not enable? Like, there's there's so many different aspects within that that are too big to talk about today. But um, of course, if you're listening, reach out to me, go to my calendar, and we can have a conversation. Because relationship, it's like, we are biologically wired for it, we want it, we need it, we literally need it to survive. And if we lose it, it hurts so, so much. Yeah. Anna, what kinds of things or messages would you want to give to someone who's listening right now that's maybe relating to your experience, maybe at the beginning, maybe ongoing recovery? What would you want them to know? Um,
1: gosh. That it's tough. It's tough and I see you think we all see you every effort that you're making is big like I don't care if you are struggling with eating disorder and you went from eating 500 calories to one day and now you're eating 800 like I applaud you for trying to make that change like everything is big and honor that like honor what you are accomplishing because it's going to be hard if you don't look at the little steps um and share it, share the accomplishments. Like if you just talk about it with yourself, like I remember when I hit a hundred pounds and I didn't tell anyone right away. And then when I told somebody suddenly it made it a big deal, like I could be proud of that. Um, So reach out for those people who are on your, reach out for your cheerleaders and let them know, like help them, let them share in this moment. Um, And if you don't have cheerleaders Try to find some, because I know they're there, and I think you know they're there. I think that those are my biggest recommendations. I think you bring up a great point that community is so important. Um, and also recognize them. it's okay to need help. Uh, you prof- Professionals are there for a reason. They're like trained to manage these sort of situations, and as a single individual, we are not necessarily trained to cope with some of the stuff that we have to deal with. Especially once we let it get too far, and so don't be ashamed in that as well.
0: Yeah, it's like it's normal to go to the doctor and get a physical. Mm-hmm. So let's make it normal to go to the doctor and have a a mental a mental checkup.
1: Yeah, yeah right. So. <laughs>
0: Um, if you are listening and you, you feel this lack of support, maybe a little bit lost or alone in the world, there are, there are groups, there's community groups, there's online groups, there's, um, there's, yeah, you could check in with like your local behavioral health center, um, with the local hospital, you can just search online, there's a whole bunch of online groups, even if you can get started in a place like Facebook. And yep. and then ask you know ask people to maybe chat with you a little bit, or um, maybe people who are closer to you have some sort of physical location that you could go to or try with. Um, it's so important, and even if you're reaching out at the beginning and not reaching out directly about an eating disorder, but just reaching out and saying, "Hey, I'm looking for a social connection," you know, it doesn't. You don't have to step into that huge vulnerable space immediately to be able to gather community. You can just start by saying, "Hey, I'm I'm new here," or "Hey, I'm I'm looking for some friends," and see yeah. where that takes you. Anna, can you talk a little bit more about your, like, how this process and this experience got you into social work and what that means for you now?
1: Yeah. Um, So it's actually part of going back to school for social work was part of my care plan, believe it or not. Um, School is really important to me. And I loved my old job. I had a really good job up at Dormecker Children's Hospital. And for those of you who don't know, it's a pretty prestigious children's hospital up in Portland. but I felt like something was missing. Um, I remember being a little girl and telling my mom that God had a plan for me. And she's like, okay. And I was like, no, God has a plan for me, but it's not about me. And like trying to explain to her as like a five year old kid that like I have a role in this world, but it's not really about my life, it's about somebody else's life. Um, and I just always had that feeling. Um, whether or not you believe in God, I think it's just my personal values, is I want to be able to support other people, um, whatever that means. And so for the longest time, I thought I wanted to be a doctor and I was gonna go cure AIDS in Africa, of course. Um, But uh, I really struggled after graduation because I decided not to do pre-med. So I wasn't working a job that really matched my values or. Um, I wasn't doing anything that I felt like was giving back or supporting people. Um, and I didn't even discover social work until I got really sick. And it was a social worker that really helped me and supported me and created a plan that, that matched what my needs were, matched what I was willing to do, which is huge, and my interests. And And she had faith in me when other people didn't. And it's like, oh, so this is what a social worker does. I could do this. Like, that sounds like exactly what I would love to do. Um, and so the therapist at the time that I was seeing uh was also a social worker, go figure. And she we had been talking about how I missed school, how I missed being with people who cared about the same things I cared about. And I missed I I felt really lost. And we started talking about social work and I knew that I wanted to go back to school for something and I loved the medical field and I wanted something to do with it, but I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to be a nurse. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And as more we talked about social work, the more I realized like this was really, it just fits so well with me. Um, and we created a five-year plan of, By this amount of time, I'll do this. By this amount of time, and it was part of my care plan. Some of it would be like, I will be eating regular meals in two months for such and such. And right along that timeline was like, I will apply to such schools. I will get into a school. I will graduate. It was all in there. Um, So social work for me is intertwined with my recovery. Um, And it's such the schooling itself is so self-reflective that i think it really helped me a lot so if nothing else like i learned so much from the field i've learned to give myself grace i've learned to recognize the things i didn't know were traumatic for me um, and it also now gives me the opportunity to take my experiences and instead of having them be these negative things use them to grow and learn and support other people so
0: there's an aspect of what you're talking about that I I think is so, so important. And if you're listening, you might identify as being a certain religion or really strong spirituality. You might identify with being an atheist. All of that is okay. And what I've found in my work, because I do have an aspect of, of faith that's included in all of the programs that I do with people. And the reason is just like you're describing, Anna, is it's this sense of service, when we're serving other people, it's so, it's so biological. It's so much in our behavior. We've always, you know, been tribe culture and history. And so instead of, if you're having a hard time, like applying this, this term of, of faith to your life, try even maybe replacing the word God with service and, and yep. see what that feels like and you know even when even when you're five you can tell your mom like this is what my life is about but it's not about me and we might not have the words to articulate this when we're five we probably don't but to say like my life is about service and even though service is about somebody else It it also really, really fills us up and our brains can't tell the difference between giving or receiving love. So even if we're giving it, we're also receiving it at the same time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think for some people, that action in and of itself is a form of connection to know that you are supporting somebody else and social work is a challenging field because you're putting a lot of effort in but oftentimes you're not received you're not appreciated you don't receive any reward for what you do so you really have to do it because it matters to you um and it does it matters to me um sometimes you see that person who makes that change and that spark and that moment that makes everything worth it. Um, especially when you're dealing with drug addiction, because it can be so, so heartbreaking to see so, so many wonderful people just coming back and back, but you'll have that person who will be able to find recovery and change their life. And just knowing that they had another opportunity. It's beautiful.
0: Are there any examples that are inspiring so far that you have witnessed that you might want to share with our listeners?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't obviously get too many details because of HIPAA policies and stuff. But um, I did actually know somebody who struggled with an eating disorder, alcoholism, and recently just got married and has been in recovery for about five years. And she was a person who would have been on the brink of going to prison and just, you know, completely, if you saw her now, you know, just another member of society, contributing member of society. So. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh Yes. And we all have the capability to be contributing. We all have the capability to have trauma and challenges and go down the road of addiction or get in trouble with the law. So we we all are capable of all of these things. And I think that's really important to keep the humanity, that thread of humanity into the conversation of recovery is is imperative for us to keep moving forward. Anna, is there anything else you want to share for listeners to check out if they're relating to your experience or um, want to follow you or your work or yeah. anything like that? Yeah,
1: I think uh, I always recommend Brene Brown. So if you haven't read The Power of Vulnerability, of course, read that. Like Anything she touches is cold. Um, I feel like that speaks to me so much. And just to the the concept of it's okay to ask for help, it's okay to need support. We all need support, it's always perfect. Um, if people, if, if you are concerned that you or a family member is struggling with an eating disorder, I really recommend the National Eating Disorder Awareness website, it's NEDA, N-E-D-A.org. They have a lot of wonderful resources for individuals and family members. Um, and then feel free to contact me. I know sometimes it can be, you don't know where to begin. And if somebody wants to reach out to me, like, feel free. You can always reach me. My email is Anna. Does, so anna.duz, so A-N-N-A dot D-U-Z at gmail.com. And I'm happy to answer any questions that people
0: have. Beautiful. Thank you so much for, for being here, for sharing, for being brave in, in your story and for all of the work that you are doing in turning something that was once painful and sometimes probably still is into something that can also serve the world and and bring us forward.
1: Thank you, Sierra.
0: Want to learn more about overcoming adversity and embracing the full expression of yourself? Visit speakwithsierra.com and book a complimentary introductory session with Sierra today.